Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus, sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Welcome to episode 10 of Jack. It is Sunday, February 5th, 2023, and we have a lot of news this week and the special counsel investigations into January 6th and the Morlago documents case. I'm your host, Andrew McCabe. And hi, Andrew. I'm Allison Gill, your co-host. And today we're going to talk about Tom Fitton, the judicial watch guy. He was seen testifying before one of Jack Smith's grand juries last Thursday. We're also going to cover John Eastman's referral for disbarment in California, along with a, a secret privilege battle over the contents of Representative Scott Perry's phone. Uh, we'll be joined later in the show by former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Shanlin Wu to discuss these developments. So I'm looking forward to that. Yes. But first, as always, Allison, we want to answer some listener questions. If you have a question for us, you can send it to hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line. Uh, and like last week, I'm hitting on two questions this week, simply because the first one I think is uh, real relevant and quick. And then the second one is a little bit more detailed. So the first question comes from Jennifer. And Jennifer's question is, the latest reporting from the New York Times about Barr and Durham was pretty intense. Okay, big agreement with you there already, Jennifer. No problem there. <laughs> Quick question. How do we know that this is all accurate when the sources are not named? I thought this is a really good question because it hits on um, a lot of the information that we talk about on the show and things that I'm sure the listeners are reading and, and kind of focused on themselves. And that is how do you assess the kind of accuracy and really how much confidence you should put into much of the open source um, uh, articles that you see. You'll notice a lot of, they use a lot of sources that, that for whose you know, they don't provide uh, identities or names for those sources. And the reason for that is simply because many people who are in positions to know things don't want to be named, don't want to be identified because it could have negative career impacts, get them in trouble, lose their friends, what have you. So reporters frequently rely on unnamed sources. So from my perspective, when I'm reading an article and it's using a lot of unnamed sources, a couple of the things I look to are first and foremost, the reputation of the institution and the reporter. And I don't just mean like those outlets that you like because they talk about the things you like to read or they, you know, their positions are similar to your own. I mean like you know, legitimate, established, long-term media organizations, most of which uh, comply with understood and widely accepted journalistic standards. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend not to put a lot of stock into a lot of the things I read on the internet from these fly-by-night websites and these obviously partisan websites. But, you know, you can trust that, you know, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, these long-term institutions that have been reporting and breaking news for many years, they all comply to a similar set of journalistic standards. And the same goes for with the reporters. You have to like always consider your source. If it's a reporter that's, you know, got Pulitzer Prizes to their name and have been doing it for a long time, their personal reputation is on the line in everything they write, and they tend to be very careful about that sort of stuff. The second thing I look at is the number of sources. Um, an article written based on one unnamed source, I don't put a lot of stock in it. But what you're seeing more and more, especially about things written about stories involving Trump or Trump world, you see many huge numbers of unnamed sources. Um, 
The New York Times article on uh, William Barr and uh, the, Do the Durham investigation, the, the first paragraph or two, uh, and I'm quoting here, says, more than a dozen current and former officials contributed to the article. So in a situation like that, you're not putting all of your faith and confidence in one source. It's a whole bunch of sources that are all pointing in the same direction, providing similar information. You can have a little bit more confidence in that. And then finally, placement of sources. If it's sources that are like clearly inside an investigation and providing, you know, very detailed reporting on specific conversations and how decisions were made, that is stuff that's, um, you know, it's it's less likely to be made up out of whole cloth. Uh, it's not saying it's perfect, um, and we're we're kind of working in generalities here. Um, but the placement of sources is always important to me as a former intelligence professional. Uh, that's one of the things that we always looked at. You know, it, can these sources, do they, could they possibly have this sort of information? Or are they coming across these people? That sort of thing. So that's kind of what I think about. I don't know how you think about unnamed sources, Allison. Yeah, no, you you pretty much hit uh, every uh, point that I was that I would hit. Um, you know, journalists n uh, all the time rely on uh, anonymous sources. We always we hear it constantly. You know, according to sources familiar with the matter who spoke on the condition of anonymity, um, you know, to to protect information or protect themselves. Um, and you know, I've come to find that there are some reporters that. I put less stock in uh, because they tend to rely on single law enforcement sources um, rather than sources from the Department of Justice. We also know that a lot of sources come from, especially in Trump reporting, come That's from right. Trump lawyers uh, or from, you know, if, if, if it's a story about Greg Jacob or if it's a story about Angle or whatever, it'll come from their lawyers who want to put the story out and get ahead of it. Like the Weisselberg reporting sure. that we got this week, for example. I'm sure it came from Weisselberg's lawyers because... The, there is grand jury secrecy, so people in the grand jury don't talk about it. The courts who are overseeing the grand jury, Chief Justice Howell, she doesn't talk about stuff that goes on in the grand jury. And we're going to talk later in the show about one of those secret grand jury proceedings that somehow got out to the press and, and how that might have happened uh, as well. So, you know, there are, there are some reporters I, I tend to not listen to. There are reporters I, I definitely put a lot of stock in and uh, belief in. I tend to like the Post more than the Times uh, because the Times has gotten a few things wrong in the past because on thinly sourced yep. information, yep. right? So uh, yeah, you you pretty much uh, covered all the bases that that I would tend to talk about myself. Excellent. So, it's, yeah, it is a good, good thing question. to think about though as you're reading all the stuff. Always consider your source. Okay, the second question comes from uh, a person who would prefer to be identified as an alarmed citizen. That could really describe a lot of us these days, but nevertheless, alarmed citizen writes in. The recent arrest of former FBI agent Charles McGonigal, former counterintelligence lead in the New York City office, and dual indictments in SDNY and D.C. on federal corruption charges stemming from influence peddling on behalf of sanctioned Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska raises a slew of questions regarding federal involvement in FBI investigations and actions into Russian interference in 2016. All the more murky given recent New York Times revelations regarding Barr, strong-arming Durham and his investigation, and also Berman railroading from the SDNY. So alarmed citizens question is, these revelations haven't received media attention and public alarm that they seem to deserve. Do these revelations shed light or new angles on the Trump investigation? So I picked this question because alarmed citizen is really mashing a lot of stuff in here, and I thought it was an opportunity to kind of tease some of it out. So the references to the Charles McGonigal cases, the one in D.C. and SDNY, it's a fascinating situation there. It's one that Allison and I talked about on the beans a couple of days ago. Um, but I would caution you not to get that too tied into what we're looking at in this show about the special counsel investigations into January 6th and, of course, the associated uh, document investigations. There's really not much overlap there. There's been a lot of talk about what sort of role that Charles McGonigal may have had in the initiation of Crossfire Hurricane, which was the investigation into uh, potential Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Um, I feel like a lot of that talk has been overblown. Um, having been there at Ground Zero when that case was started and been a part of all those conversations, um, at headquarters around the major decisions in that case. 
Uh, I can tell you that uh, Charles McGonigal did not play a big role, certainly at headquarters at all, in those decisions. And so I feel like people are kind of grasping straws on that one. Um, as far as the politicization of the institution, specifically DOJ, under the Trump administration, that is a theme and a problem, an issue that we've all been really concerned about and talking about for a long time. Um, we're talk and I think the I think the Barr slash Durham investigation is a great example of that. I mean, there you have an illegitimate investigation that was opened really to settle political scores for the president, and therefore. A, I believe, it's my opinion, a um, uh, a misuse of the Department of Justice and the criminal justice system to pursue what was essentially a political errand. And I think that's emblematic of a lot of what happened during the Trump administration under Barr's uh, supervision of DOJ and also under his predecessor, Jeff Sessions. Um, and then, of course, you got Trump himself. You see a million examples of that across the scope of his administration, attacking judges publicly, attacking people who cooperate with the federal government in investigations, which is really incredible. It all, you know, probably no better example than the infamous Jeff Clark caper and the efforts to overturn uh, the election uh, in the lead up to January 6th. Um, so there's a lot there that I think you can point to. So, again, it's a consistent theme. How strongly those themes play into the current investigations of Donald Trump? Um, I think the Jeff Clark January 6th angle, very relevant, and we'll see how Jack Smith handles all that stuff. Um, the document side, maybe not so much. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Allison? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you on, on all of that. And, you know, I just want to add, I think it's, you know, really important that um, it, in, just in this past week, we learned that the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Dick Durbin, says he wants to investigate what went on with Durham. Uh, I would like to see uh, Durham questioned about this. I'd like to see Barr questioned about this in front of that committee. I'd like to see Garland asked a few questions about this in front of that committee, because I still contend that, you know, you can fire a special counsel for cause and ignoring a judge's order twice and going to a grand jury to get information on a private citizen seems like cause. It seems <laughs> so, very causey. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of us are mad that he had, you know, investigated a Trump crime and didn't tell anybody and clearly declined to prosecute. I, I don't see any, um, I mean, other than, you know, just politicization, but, uh, you know, I don't see any, that do, that doesn't feel like cause to me, right? Because you, you are allowed to investigate and decline to prosecute if that's, if, you know, if that's your druthers. Um, that, you know, Barr did it with the obstruction uh, that was found in, in the Mueller investigation. Um, it's it's awful and, and politicized, uh, but it's really kind of difficult to, to overcome those declinations because of the prosecutorial discretion rules. So, uh, but I, I'd be really interested to know why, at the very least, that uh, rebuff, that dual rebuff of the, of the chief judge overseeing the grand jury's barrel howl, where she's like, no, you can't have this. You you can't have these. Uh, and then he, she said no twice, and then he went and got it anyway through the grand jury. I think that seems like a misconduct uh, uh, that that I believe is uh, fireable for cause. But it, it's at least a question that should be asked. Did you know this right. happened? Why didn't you fire him I think for that's, cause? I think that's fair. Durbin's uh, indications earlier this week see, certainly seem to lean in that direction of um, maybe expecting to see hearings once Durham's report is uh, finally tendered. And you also had a letter this week from uh, freshman Congressman Dan Goldman um, and also another congressman whose name escapes me. The two of them sent a letter to Garland this week essentially demanding that kind of review. I think I think their request was that uh, the IG investigate Durham and how he used his authority and and those sorts of things. So who knows? We might actually see some some inquiry into how Durham uh, has done his job uh, there. But I guess more on that to follow in the future. Yeah. Can we not have Horowitz look into it? Can we just <laughs> have the Senate Intelligence I mean, Committee I, do it, please? I, for and one, have had enough of that guy. But you probably would have guessed that. Uh, I'm, I'm biased. Uh, I'll, I'll admit that. But uh, that's that's where I stand on him. Yeah, for sure. For reals. All right, Andy, check out this lead. Uh, this is from Politico. The California Bar's top disciplinary official is seeking the disbarment of John Eastman an architect of Donald Trump's bid to subvert the 2020 election for what he describes as a strategy unsupported by facts or law 
to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election. Now, this is the this is a 25 page document. OK, they the, the amount of stuff this guy did wrong uh, is, is so voluminous that they couldn't even squeeze into like yeah. a three page memo. Right. It's 25 pages. There's 11 counts. Uh, and we don't have to go over all of these, but I'll give you some I'll, like there's failure to support the Constitution and laws of the United I mean, that's States. That's a pretty big okay, one. That's the big Oh, it's the lawyer big first 101. One. This is what you're supposed to do, and <laughs> you're not doing it. So that's a, that's a rough one. Then we have a couple of instances of seeking to mislead the court. First, when he filed onto that lawsuit to Texas versus Pennsylvania, where he said there were several instances of evidence of voter fraud in the election when he knew there was not. And in this document, there is proof that he knew there was not when he made those allegations. Also, misled the court by filing for injunctive relief in Georgia to decertify their election results, again, based on non-factual allegations of fraud. And they have proof that he knew that they were lies, basically. Um, now, there's also something in here called moral turpitude. I love that one. And misrepresentation. That might be my favorite. Moral turpitude and misrepresentation. It, it seems like, I don't know, like you lied about something and then also did something horrible at the same time that I don't even want to think about. <laughs> yeah, because there are just counts of regular moral <laughs> turpitude. But then there are some that tack on misrepresentation, like when he wrote that memo to Pence right. and Trump falsely saying that seven states had transmitted dual like legit dual slates of electors when he knew they were not legit and they have proof that he knew they were not legit uh there was when he said on bannon's podcast there was massive evidence of fraud when he knew there wasn't um there was when he sent the six-page memo to trump and pence that there was evidence of election fraud and dual slates of electors a different there was a two-page memo and yeah, a six-page memo both lies that's both a tough lies. one that, i mean that one's back to i mean that one's got receipts right you got the actual memo that one um it really sounds like it's got a little bit more heft to it than let's say uh when he claimed voter fraud in georgia during his ellipse rally speech that he knew were false like you know you, it's different uh, well that it's bad. It's a moral turpitude and misrepresentation, apparently, to stand, uh, to get all fired up at the ellipse rally and start saying crazy stuff. But it just seems an entire degree worse when your misrepresentation is the product of a six page memo that you researched and wrote and crafted and edited and then delivered to the vice president of the United States. I mean, that is not, um, it's not a trifling matter. Yeah, nope. And, and more rep more misrepresentation and moral turpitude when he wrote an article for a, a, a publication called The American Mind, which had lies that he knew were lies about election fraud. And then counts 10 and 11 are just moral turpitude without the misrepresentation. Straight up moral turp. <laughs> moral turp. Uh, and one of those is when he encouraged Pence to toss out the certified electors. And the other one was when he told the ellipse crowd that he had, that Pence had the authority to throw out uh, certified electors. Um, so 11 counts is a bit, I, I've seen a few uh, disbarment um, filings in my, in my time yes. following these, you know, following the crack and yep, strike yep. force and everything. This is a, this is a big one. This it, is a it lot. Is. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I feel like we're going to see what we saw in the Rudy Giuliani disbarment investigation where they're going to sit down, they're going to crack their books, they're going to start looking at evidence, and they're going to immediately say, we have to suspend his license before we even complete our investigation. He's so bad. This is so dangerous. He's, he's <laughs> This is so egregious. And that's because that's what happened to Rudy. They sat down to start to look to investigate him. And normally when you investigate somebody for disbarment, you sit down, you go through all the facts, you have a couple of hearings, and then you decide whether they can have their law license still. But in Rudy's case, they were like, you're so bad, we have to suspend you while we investigate. I think we might see the same thing here. Um, and possibly using Rudy Giuliani as an example in the Eastman case. It we'll certainly could out. happen. And I mean, this is a First of all, it's rare. It seems common because, as you said, we've been following these in the Rudy case and uh, and others. But it is actually rare for a state bar association to kind of come after a prominent lawyer. Um, you know, you see it typically in cases where it's a little more obvious. It's like, you know, a lawyer steals millions of dollars from the attorney-client trust fund, things like that, where it's pretty cut and dry um, instances of theft or fraud or something like that. 
but this is basically going after Eastman for um, for for the content of what of his lawyering, right? It's basically saying you engaged in a a pretty elaborate scheme of fraud and misrepresentations and perpetuating you know false statements to the court and to the public. Uh, you really don't see this very often. I think it's good that we're seeing it as commonly as we are in relation to these events because, you know, hopefully other lawyers will think about this a little bit before they get roped into some of these schemes. If they're, you know, seriously considering like, hey, I might lose my license over this, that's typically where you see lawyers back off an aggressive tactic. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I think we'll see more disbarment hearings as, as time goes on. Uh, and as as Trump, uh, you know, goes through a, a whole slew of lawyers that he that he tends to he tends to chew them yeah. up and spit them out um, and they, they end up uh, getting the raw end of the deal. I, I'm surprised that uh, these lawyers that keep signing on to Trump cases haven't quite learned their lesson. Although Chris Kyes came in and said, I want three million dollars up front and I'm not going to lie to the court for you. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> That's a smart lawyer right there. I think he's probably the only one that kind of gets where this yeah. could be headed. Um, but we'll. We'll see how it ends up. And we've got, you know, we've got a $1 million sanctions award for his frivolous lawsuit That's right. against you and uh, the, rest, the rest of the Western world. And um, we now see a sanctions filing from uh, Tish James, which I said, hey, you should get ready, get your sanctions motion ready, Tish, because <laughs> uh, it happened to her, too. Um, and he's they've dropped a couple of lawsuits in the wake of that, which is good because then those lawsuits don't clog up the court and, and waste people's time and waste tax taxpayer dollars. So these fines and these sanctions work. They do their job to deter these lawyers from filing That's these right. frivolous lawsuits. So I'm, I'm yep, glad we're same. seeing it too. All right. Well, hey, we have a surprise for you. We're going to be right back after this break with former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst. Our friend Shan Wu is going to join us. We're going to talk about a couple of things, including Tom Fitton testimony to the grand jury, Jack Smith's grand jury. And we're talking about this, the secret... Uh, clandestine hearings about Scott Perry's phone. So it should be very interesting. I'm looking forward to getting his insights on these stories. We'll be right back. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin spies and mobsters, and so many traitors. Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. So, Renato, do you still have your own podcast? Yeah, it's complicated. What's so complicated about a podcast? That's the name of the podcast, remember? Oh, Will you still be exploring topics that help us understand the week's news? You bet. But we'll have a new name because we're going to be working together to explore complicated issues that are dominating the news. Working together? Yeah, you're hosting it with me, remember? Oh, right. Wait, does that mean our podcast is going to have a steam mop segment? Let's not get carried away. But we'll discuss hot new legal topics, so check out our new episode, Coming soon to everywhere you get podcasts as well as YouTube. All right, everybody, welcome back. So we are going to be joined right now by a friend of mine, Shan Wu. He's a former federal prosecutor, served in the Clinton administration as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. He's now nationally known criminal defense lawyer. He appears regularly on CNN. He's a legal analyst for CNN. He's been on NPR, podcast, streaming media. He offers analysis on issues including the Trump impeachments, the Mueller probe, and prosecutions of all sorts and politics inside the Department of Justice. Uh, recent notable cases, by the way, include his representation of Rick Gates, co-defendant with Paul Manafort in the special Mueller counsel probe, as well as the case of Mimi Groves, a University of Tennessee cheerleader who was victimized by cancel culture. Uh, uh, Shan has an MFA in creative writing from Sarah Lawrence and an English literature degree from Vassar, graduated from Georgetown University Law School. So very varied background for our friend Shan. Welcome. 
<laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so um, I wanted to open up our conversation by talking about Tom Fitton. We all uh, kind of know, I think listeners of this program are, are familiar with who, who Tom Fitton is. And NBC reported, he's, he's the, the Judicial Watch guy. He's been around for several decades. He's not a lawyer, um, uh, but he's been advising Trump on a few things. And NBC reports he was seen with at least one prosecutor from Jack Smith's team entering the courthouse where the grand jury meets. And, uh, you know, this could be either about the January 6th probe, because the committee says he played a role in January 6th by telling Trump to declare victory before all the votes were counted, or it could be about the, the documents case. Now, we know both grand juries for those investigations are meeting at that, at that courthouse, so we aren't sure. A lot of this would be speculation, but... Uh, Shan, talk a little bit about uh, Tom Fitton and, and how his testimony could be important to Jack Smith. Well, Fitton is sort of a twofer for the special counsel uh, since he has been given this mandate of looking uh, at both the January 6th plus the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. I think what it says is up until now, my guess is that a lot of what they've been doing are kind of simply continuing the momentum. Uh, Jack Smith had said he didn't expect there to be any delays, and that's proper. Uh, the only delay that would have arisen was if he was kind of doing a grandstanding act, like, okay, I need to review everything that's happened up until this point to direct it. But to me, reading between the lines, he clearly allowed the momentum and the diligent work that had already been done to go forward. So in that sense, with him coming on board, uh, you know, whether he had to you know, come back into the country, that really didn't cause any delays. Um, but right about now, I would say you're starting to probably see a little bit more um, of his and or his deputies influences now in kind of expanding uh, the witnesses at this point. And I think with someone like Fitton, you really get to, from a prosecutor's point of view, you really get to exploit some of the weaknesses in the way that uh, Trump, you know, took advice, for lack of a better word, um, by having all these folks who are not lawyers, uh, giving him advice sometimes in writing, it really opens up the field uh, for people to ask them questions because they don't really have any privilege issues. There's no way to protect whatever advice he had gotten. So folks like Fitton um, can be very valuable because there's not much they can really do to shield their information unless they just want to you know, fall on the sword and refuse to cooperate and take a contempt violation. So I think people like this are particularly valuable. And, you know, he's, you know, like I said, he's a twofer. You got him there, you can put him in both grand juries the same day. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And, and Fitton is also a guy who clearly... You know, he's got a direct line into Trump. The fact that he appears on, as you say, he's the twofer, he appears on both sides of this investigation, I think proves that he's relevant. If he's relevant to both parts of this investigation, it's because he was in frequent contact with Trump, which opens up a whole other area of like, what else does this guy know? What other conversations has he mm -hmm. had with him? What other documents has he exchanged with him? Um, I, I think it's probably possible that Fitton might, sit in front of the grand jury, uh, depending on what questions he's asked, if he thinks that they could get, you know, get him in any sort of criminal uh, um, problems, he could certainly take the fifth. But he's also seems right. to be the type of guy that, look, Jack Smith isn't the special counsel for the prosecution of Tom Fitton. Tom Fitton is very clearly someone who they're likely, you know, interested as a witness and if he goes in and claims, you know, Fifth Amendment privilege, he's very much he, he could be looking at a grant of immunity and then he can't keep his mouth shut. He's got to answer the questions or suffer that contempt uh, problem that you referred to. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. And I think, uh, you know, we've been hearing so much for years now about the question of proving uh, Trump's state of mind, i.e. his intent. And I think folks like this, when they give testimony, will go a long way towards establishing that. Now, of course, you know, Trump, like anybody else, is free to you know, disclaim to his lawyers or himself where he'd actually testify that, you know, I disagree with that. You know, I, they didn't say that. I don't remember that, et cetera, et cetera. But I think when you're looking at intent, you know, as we all know, it's circumstantial evidence to prove it. 
there is a certain point in kind of the spectrum of things where there is so much circumstantial evidence of people saying, I talked to Trump about this, you know, Trump said this, he knew this. At a certain point, it reaches a certain critical mass where even though he will, of course, deny recollection, deny knowing all of it, that circumstantial evidence will start to reach a critical mass where it really becomes, I think, much more appealing um, to the prosecutors to say, yeah, you know, we're, we're pretty comfortable uh, with, with showing this. Yeah, that that is true. And you think about it again in terms of uh, in the context of Tom Fenton. He's also a guy who appears in the media all the time. He's a very frequent guest on Fox. He's on, you know, Bannon's podcast and other places frequently. So um, you all you have the added possibility of like contemporaneous statements. So in other words, if he <laughs> is saying now that I did talk to Trump, uh, you know, six months ago about the documents and the prosecution can come up with a tape of him making a similar comment like that, you know, five and a half, six months ago, it really substantiates what he would be saying to the grand jury or, or to prosecutors. So um, he's, he might, my point is he's got, it's possible that there are other statements that he's made that are consistent with whatever he may be telling the grand jury, which only bolsters the importance of his content. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a demonstrate your investigative abilities there to kind of line up uh, those public statements he may have made with what was happening at the time. And uh, obviously, it also gives uh, the investigators, the questioners, a kind of a treasure chest of things to either refresh his memory with yep. <laughs> uh, or to question, yep. you know, what, what his version of it is now. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, rich source in terms of things to press him about. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, uh, well done by the Jack Smith team, because Fitton is a guy with a big profile, big platform, constantly in the media. Uh, clearly, they're not afraid of bringing somebody like that into the grand jury, even though they know that as a witness in front of the grand jury, he could turn around, walk out of his several hour session and immediately talk to the media about all the questions he was asked and the sort of things that the government is interested in and that, that sort of stuff. Right. And they don't, <laughs> that apparently did not dissuade them from bringing him in in front of uh, the grand jury. So I think that's a good sign of their uh, aggressiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it also seems like, the, uh, you know, Shan, who he reminds me the most of so far that's already testified. And and by the way, Andy, that's a really good point, because when you start to get to these loudmouth, recalcitrant, you know, angry guys, it seems like you're getting toward the end of an investigation and not the beginning, because <laughs> that that's when they that's when they blab the most. But um, it, it reminds me of Kosh Patel. This is like feels like a Kosh Patel type of a. Uh, a, a witness like just like you said he could go in he could plead the fifth he could be given immunity which is what happened with Kosh Patel Kosh Patel knows a little bit about what Trump was thinking uh, about declassifying the documents with his mind or whether he knew the documents were classified or not or what his intent was in taking them in the first place and I think Tom Fitton also knows a lot of, about that because he's the guy who advised Donald to ignore the Department of Justice based on a an old Clinton case about how Clinton made journal diary tapes with uh, uh, somebody at the, well, a friend of his at the White House that was going to write a book. And, and Judge, I think it was Amy Berman Jackson, actually, determined that those tapes were not, per, you know, part of the presidential, fall under the Presidential Records Act because they were personal, because of what, not the content of the tapes, but what they were going to be used for. And and that is sort of how Tom Fitton, who's not a lawyer, is is advising Trump. And so I could see it kind of turning out the same way. And I also wouldn't be surprised if Kosh Patel pointed them in the direction of Tom Fitton or had some testimony after he was given immunity about, you should ask Tom Fitton about that, you know. So I think it's very interesting that we see him going into the grand jury room. And I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't hear that he was granted uh, immunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I just want to touch on the immunity point um, for a moment because it's so interesting to me. Um, you know, Andrew, I'm not sure what your experience had been, but it was very rare um, to grant immunity and the circumstances were usually much more where the uh, witness defendant targets lawyers were making a real pitch for it saying, look, you know, we can give you all this valuable information, but you know, you got to cut my guy immunity, a lot of proffers, prosecutors being very reluctant, you know, to grant 
that because they want to be really certain what they're getting. It, it seems a little bit different uh, in this Trump world era where immunity is really much more being used aggressively to compel the testimony as opposed to being sort of like a benefit of the bargain um, to them. And I think they, they did that with Patel. If they do that with Fitton, um, I think it speaks well to the sort of fluidity um, of Smith's office's thinking of being able to adjust to these circumstances. Because these are, it feels different to me. I and mean, these are folks who just generally want to stonewall and to some extent fall on the sword. And it's very different than when you bring in people and they're like really sweating, they're nervous about, you know, what the best deal I can cut for myself and using the immunity in this sort of a more aggressive offensive um, fashion, I, I think is interesting to watch. I totally agree with you. And that was my experience as well. Like immunity was the, was this kind of idea that you really got to in very, very few, very rare cases. And I think that's because in your garden variety enterprise case, RICO case, you know, narcotics enterprise case, whatever, I mean, I think prosecutors are reluctant to hand out immunity to someone who very likely the next witness who walks in the door might tell you that that guy you just immunized also committed a homicide that you weren't aware of. And so the prosecutors exactly. want to keep their options open to really kind of hold anybody's feet to the fire. In this case, what I think it reflects is a very, very clear focus. They know where they're yeah. going mm -hmm. here. They know who it is they're going after. And a more uh, offensive stance, right? We saw it with the contempt filing uh, that they that they uh, attempted to get uh, for Trump, you know, not appointing a records guy and, and all that stuff. So they, they went after contempt. And and also, Andrew, we, we, we talked about in one of the first two episodes, lessons learned from the Mueller investigation. The special counsel, Jack Smith, has the benefit of a very recent special counsel probe into Donald Trump. And one of the lessons learned might have been like, hey, you got to go after these guys with with immunity because they're going to blow up their own plea agreements and and you know yeah uh and and mess stuff up we saw it happen quite a bit in the Mueller investigation and so that could be a valuable lesson learned and maybe why they're taking why Jack Smith is taking this more aggressive stance that that Shan's talking about I I totally agree I think the the signs that we keep seeing from Jack Smith is lean forward aggressive prosecutor He's willing to push the envelope, and he's also agile, right? He's moving, he's adapting to the to the targets that he's dealing with, to the tech tactics that they seem to have used in recent cases. Um, and he's, you know, not afraid to reach back into the toolkit and and go to something like immunity or other other tactics to to drive this thing to a uh, to a conclusion. Awesome. Mm -hmm. All right, we have to take a quick break, but we're going to be back with uh, with our our friend, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst Shannon Wu. We're going to talk about the 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 secret grand jury battle uh, to get at what the contents of you know the contents of, of Rep. Scott Perry's phone. So stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, we are talking with uh, our friend Shanlin Wu, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst. And Shan, we already know, going back to at least May of last year, the Department of Justice has been trying to get at Scott Perry's phone. Uh, we know that the DOJ investigative team had contacted the DOJ filter team and asked them to prioritize emails back and forth to Scott Perry from a tranche of emails they had gotten pursuant to a search warrant from Klukowski, Clark, and uh, and Eastman, right? And and they did. And then shortly after that, they got a search warrant. Now, this was the inspector general. Uh, inspector general agents got a search warrant to grab and image Scott Perry's phone. Uh, and then later, uh, you know, asked for a second search warrant to access the contents of the phone. And I wanted to ask before we, you know, we get into, you know, these secret grand jury battles and, and trying to get overcome these privilege issues with a with a representative of Congress. Um, Shan, could you tell me why it was inspector general uh, agents that seized the phone first and then DOJ kind of took it over from there for the second search warrant? Have you ever seen anything like that? I was afraid you're going to ask me that. I want to ask you that. <laughs> uh, that was a <laughs> that was I mean, a I have an idea, circumstance. But... 
<laughs> yeah, we know that, uh, you know, the, the DOJ inspector general opened an investigation, two investigations into the Department of Justice with respect to January 6th. And so maybe that would came from that. And then, you know, we're going to 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 further buffer us from politicization. We're going to have the inspector general do this and then the DOJ can get a warrant for the for the rest of the phone. I, I'm I'm totally guessing, but I've never seen anything like that. I thought it was uh, I thought it was very weird. But uh, let's talk about the fact uh, and, and this is both to you, Andrew and Shan, um, the a group of a panel of Congress members, a bipartisan panel of Congress members voted unanimously to intervene on behalf of Representative Scott Perry to stop the DOJ from getting the contents of his phone, I guess, to apparently to protect their own. This was a bipartisan panel that includes Hakeem Jeffries and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, And I find that odd. I think that's, I mean, I understand you want to protect your stuff because you're a member of Congress, but when you're, uh, when you're criming, I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) Well, we'll get to the criming in a minute. I actually wasn't surprised to hear that they had uh, intervened in the case in this way. So basically, the, this argument over accessing uh, the content of the phone is coming down to an argument about the speech and debate clause, which basically, it's the, uh, the magic force field that protects all sorts of uh, the communications, the documents, the kind of interactions of Congress, members of Congress from uh, scrutiny uh, in criminal matters uh, to ensure that investigations don't impinge upon, you know, the function of Congress, lawmakers' abilities to discuss uh, business with each other, you know, that sort of thing. It's the best comparison I could draw to this would be the some of the presidential privileges, right? So it's it's widely considered uh, privilege the conversations between the White House counsel and the president, not because there's an attorney-client privilege there like you would have with your own personal lawyer, because of course the White House counsel is not the personal lawyer of the president. But because we try to protect the president's abil- any president's ability to seek counsel and advice from his White House, White House counsel or, or kind of uh, inner sanctum of advisors. That's the same sort of idea that uh, is behind the speech and debate clause in Congress. So because that clause is kind of right in the center of this argument, it doesn't surprise me that this bipartisan commission of Congress would weigh in with their concerns about protecting that uh, privilege. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And I think, um, well, well, first, let, let me make the more aggressive point, which is I think that the speech and debate clause uh, is used too much as a shield. And it's an extremely unusual circumstance historically here because, you know, at least in my lifetime, there's never been a scenario where so many members of Congress uh, should be under scrutiny for their support, whether, you know, overt or more subtle uh, in trying to stop that election process and at least giving support um, to Trump's election interference efforts. So the idea that any of those efforts were legitimately within the speech and debate clause just seems nonsensical to me. And so I think it's an unusual historical situation um, for it to be coming up. I completely agree with you, Andrew. I mean, I, I get why the members of Congress would not be wanting that because they're concerned. We always talk about precedent in sort of an esoteric way, but frankly, they're thinking, well, gee, you know, if an attorney general from the other party gets in the power, then they're going to like pull all my records constantly. Yeah, yep, so, that's right. So, you know, that, that's that, right. That's exactly what they're worried about. Uh, you know, it's an interesting issue. I would like to see it sliced and diced a bit, and it will be through the court system. And it might be nice to see the Supreme Court reaffirm that, but you know, DOJ is going to be, if they can avoid it, they're going to be very reluctant um, to have a bunch of appellate precedent and maybe have SCOTUS rule on it because that's the last thing that they want. I mean, the the appellate um, nerds are always saying, you know, think three times before you really have anybody make law on this in terms of the judges because if it goes wrong, you know, you're stuck with yeah, it. Yeah, you're stuck with it for a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. I'm, I'd like to see them clear it up, but I don't know if they want to. <laughs> yeah, I, it's be careful what you wish for. Anytime you're you're dancing this close to the edge of something that would likely end up in front of the Supreme Court, 
Um, I agree with you. Like, I don't think it's an appropriate application of the privilege on these facts. Uh, I'm not surprised that Congress is trying to defend it. They're trying to, they don't want to lose any part of the privilege. But I can almost imagine a kind of, you know, Solomonic uh, resolution here. There would, I can imagine, you know, a a careful review of the content of the phone and then separating out any conversations that are not with, let's say, other targets of investigation. That's just one way to do it. So you could basically um, quarantine stuff that you think would probably be pretty clearly um, in the speech and debate lane and really only focus on those things that might be part of an ongoing criminal conspiracy, which would likely be you know, that's one of the ways to to um, to pierce that privilege. If you can say, you know, that it's the infamous kind of crime fraud exception. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's a compromise judgment here that could we could see that take place um, at some level that might ward off either party's uh, desire to push this thing to the Supreme Court. Hopefully, maybe I'm just being an optimist. We saw it play out with the Lindsey Graham case, right? Because he was claiming it was part of my speech or debate legislative job to call up uh, Raffensperger and ask him to throw out a bunch of ballots. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, the, the, the courts eventually, it, it went up and they said, you figure it out. And it went back down and they eventually said, all right, look, here's what you can ask about. Here's what you can't ask about. And and in the grand jury, and, and this was in Fulton County, Georgia, and I, I imagine it could be uh, potentially the same thing here, and we could have it decided by the appellate court. All three judges are conservative judges on this appellate panel that the hearing's going to be on February 23rd, but they can go on bonk, and then maybe the Supreme Court just doesn't uh, hear it, and you know, because they they've done that quite a bit in these Trump-related cases. They they refuse to hear things, but they might want to listen to this one because it's got a lot to do with separation of powers. Uh, but I mean, there's really kind of no way to know where where this is going, and if this is just one test case, or if they're looking at other Congress people's phones as well. We just haven't heard. I, I'm not sure. But uh, Shan, what do you think are the are the chances that this could get litigated in a more broad decision that could set precedent versus a more narrow decision, or have the courts decide, like Andy said, what you you figure out what you can ask and what you can't ask? Well. If I had to hazard a guess, I mean, I, I think, as you're pointing out, the Supreme Court might uh, take a hands-off approach to it. I mean, the the two sides are going to argue very differently. I, I think in defending the congressional side, wanting the broadest um, protections possible are really going to argue in a very broad way that this is a separation of powers issue. You need to speak very solidly and broadly to our protections. DOJ, on the other hand, is going to want to argue very narrowly that this is very fact specific. And honestly, I don't see any reason why this is different than any other taint team situation. You know, why can't um, a regular taint team protection handle it this way? I think it's interesting, you know, you brought up Lindsey Graham's situation. I think there's a very good analogy. There are some important distinctions, I think, which make it more worrisome in terms of what will the courts do with it. Uh, and the main distinction, I think, is there's a atmospheric difference to the federal DOJ seeking this from the federal member of Congress feels more like something that's go to things, oh, you know, it's a little bit different than a state situation. Graham's a federal person, it's a state investigation. Also, in, in in Perry's defense, I mean, that there is something to the fact that there's so much of our lives um, on in digital form on your phone that you certainly wouldn't want a grand card launch. Hey, just take a look through my phone. And so there, there's that in that aspect, um, it's a far potentially overbroad inquiry. But I do think that the smart path for DOJ to argue, which I'm sure they'll continue to argue is that it's very narrowly focused and traditional protections through a team team um, can work. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that, you know, that's how the, the judges will see it ultimately too. Yeah. That's my hope. That's my hope as well. Yeah. Agree. Well, we are running short on time though. <laughs> we are. <laughs> but there's, I mean, there's no way to rush these things through 
you know, these particular court battles, you know, I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's taken so long. What's taken so long? These kinds of fights that have been going on for almost a year to get information and Mm -hmm. get evidence uh, are what can really drag this drag this thing out. That's right. Shan, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, We really appreciate it. Can you let everybody know where they can find and follow you before we get out of here? Oh, sure. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter uh, at (laughs) Shannon. So that'd be great. (laughs) Easy enough. Thanks so much. And um, this has been a great episode. Uh, we appreciate your time, Andrew. It's been great. Uh, sure. And uh, we'll be back. We'll be back next week. I'm sure there's going to be more uh, Jack Smith news between now and then. There always is. Uh, we all, And you know what's funny is we always worry. Shan, we're always like, is there going to be enough to report on? And here we are. <laughs> pushing another hour. Yeah, for sure. I'm sh- I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about next week. Shan, thank you as well for uh, helping us out here, and uh, I'll sure be we'll be calling you back in a few weeks when we we hear more about these decisions and say, oh, you got it right. <laughs> All right, anytime. <laughs> All right, I'm Andrew McCabe. I'm Allison Gill. We'll see you next week on Jack. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Teese, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? Sorry. What we're no, drinking? It's amazing. It, it's it amazing. Right it just... Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Teese, friends, and listen to what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.